Sagar and Marshall here. Welcome back to The Realignment. Ted Turner, married to technologies. He sees this moment. He got this thing up and running. It almost didn't happen. Um, so many things went wrong. Finally, it got up. People are like, what the hell is this? Why the hell do we need this? Who the hell wants it? What's cable television? Oh my God, everybody now all of a sudden goes from what's cable television to I can't live without cable television. And uh, all of a sudden, you know, the vultures are swarming. Everybody wants a piece of the action. Fox comes in, MSNBC comes in, everything changes. We have an awesome show that's really near and dear to our hearts and to the stuff we work on every day. We are speaking with Lisa Napoli. She's written Up All Night, Ted Turner, CNN, and The Birth of 24-Hour News. Obviously, everyone and their cousin is talking about what is the future of news after the Trump administration, everything from Trump TV to how cable news outfits like CNN, MSNBC, and Fox will shift without President Trump's Twitter driving the conversation. There's a lot there. But the part that was so helpful in this episode, Sagar, is Lisa's discussion of the fact that all these debates have basically been had for the past century, just with different players, different technology. And the player in the case that we're talking about today, of course, is Ted Turner, who came up with CNN and really played a large role in shaping a lot of our lives growing up. Yeah, I mean, a lot of us tend to think that what's happening is revolutionary. But if you read enough history, especially about the media business, a lot of what's happening right now is just analogous to what happened before. It's just that the technology is different. That's one of the things I love most about this episode is how Lisa talks about how the technology at the time, satellite and then t- cable and, and so much about the decentralization, really, at least in the beginning, allowed Ted Turner to come in, create this revolutionary new product, which changed the news and information business forever. Now we have the internet, and now we're even moving into more different spheres, and, and podcasting, and Instagram, and so much more. So we got to know our past if we want to understand the future, and what the hell is going to happen here. So this is a great discussion, both about the birth of cable, why cable sucks, how it ended up sucking, what might come for the future. So if you're interested in all these debates, as I'm sure everybody is, what the hell are these people going to do without ratings machine Donald Trump, then this is the perfect episode for you. But before we get to that, just as a reminder, we launched a Substack for our listeners. It has additional resources, it has links, it has transcripts, we're going to have book lists there. We have a lot of very fun stuff that's planned for all of you. Please go check it out at realignment.substack.com. And something that comes up during this conversation is Lisa has written a bunch of really interesting books, especially Up All Night. So if you follow the bookshop.org link in the Substack newsletter, you can buy the book and you also support the show while supporting small independent booksellers that are really struggling during COVID-19. So you can do a lot of really good deeds, that, deeds there, least of which, of course, is supporting our show. Okay, which means it's time for my favorite part of the episode, where you can leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you can leave us a written question in that five-star review, or you can take a screenshot, send it into realignmentpod at gmail.com. Those reviews really help people find the show, so please keep them coming. What is today's question, Marshall? So today's question is from Apple, and it is from a guy or gal who's titled themselves Need Audio. Hey, <laughs> huge fan of Rising in the Realignment. What do you guys think about bringing back earmarks 
to help stop gridlock. So Sagar, before you give your opinion, contextualize from a DC perspective, what are earmarks? What was the sort of debate that led to them going away? And then we'll get into our opinions. So earmarks are specific monetary resources that are going towards individual senators. So let's give everybody an example. These are like the famous ones. You need a Nebraska senator to like vote for Obamacare. So as part of Obamacare, you specifically write in that you're going to build like a clinic in Omaha, Nebraska, which guarantees like a Nebraska senator to go and vote for it. Okay. So that's like at its best. Well, there's a better... Well, the most important example that anyone who was in high school in the 2000s remembers the bridge to nowhere, which was Sarah Palin's thing, where Sarah Palin said that she canceled this bridge that only in Alaska that only served 50 people on a tiny island that the Alaska senator passed to get sort of legislation juice. So there's all these sort of big examples of this earmark policy that led to it being very unpopular. There you go. They're terrible examples. They're actually pretty good examples. Um, And it was eliminated um, after 2010. The whole Tea Party is a big Tea Party deficit thing. We're like, oh, we got to stop all these earmarks, even though it was like 0.01% of the federal budget. But anyway, uh, I guess you're starting to get to what my position is. Yeah, I think it should be brought back. It was a great piece of legislative trade making. The fact of the matter is, is gridlock and opposition has only done more in order to harm the American people. Go take a look at stimulus negotiations if you want to learn more about that. Look, I've read a lot of history. Some of the most important pieces of legislation in American history have been passed, not because it was the right thing, because of some bullshit earmarks. You want to talk about the Civil Rights Act? This Western senators decided to vote for it because of some damn money, literally, so that they get financed um, in their dams. And yeah, look, that's the Civil Rights Act. And there's a million other examples. What do you think, Marshall? Yeah, my first take here is that something we've been trying to push on the show is the idea that focusing too much on capital C corruption and the narratives around it can actually be counterproductive. So yeah, obviously if we look at this in the abstract and just sort of say, is it a good thing in the abstract that people are voting for legislation because they get a little kickback to their district? No, that's not great. That's not defensible from a perspective of how does moral policy look? That doesn't make any sense. I think you agree with that, Sagar. But on the other hand, what certainly doesn't make sense is the idea that that small, tiny amount of money isn't compensated for in the sense that government actually functions. So when we're balancing corruption or charges of corruption and accusations of fiscal indiscipline, we should look at that and compare it with the nature of the actual project we're trying to get. So if we ever got that big infrastructure package, which all members of the realignment listenership likely support, we're not going to get that without a little bit of pork. That's also what it's called, pork barrel spending. That's very important. Yeah, look, exactly. I mean, who cares about some bullshit earmarks if we could get a $3 trillion stimulus bill? Like, you know, like in terms of the grand scheme of things, it just means nothing. And so I think that that is the hardest part. And this is something which libertarians do, which drive me nuts, right? Which they'll point to the New Deal. And they'll point to like one area program within the New Deal, which was counterintuitive and ended up reversing a trend. And they'll be like, see, the entire New Deal was a failure. And you're like, well, I mean, that one program was a failure. Like, does that mean that like, and oh, and then they'll use that as evidence for why all government policy is bad. I'm like, I think you just proved that this one government policy was bad, not that all government policy is bad. And they do this for everything and drives me totally crazy. 
Yeah, this is a perfect example of how incentive systems break down in the sense that because Congress is empirically terrible, <laughs> you're encouraged. If we were running for Congress, we would say, look at these congressmen. Yeah. They have their earmarks and they're corrupt and they're silly. People are incentivized in the current moment to run against their own unpopular institution in a way that then degrades the performance of the institution, which gets a really negative feedback loop going. And then the institution actually doesn't do anything. So there's no real way out of that death spiral. If you have a good note of that, definitely send us a email because we'd love to put that in the newsletter. And with that, as always, a special thank you to the Lincoln Network for sponsoring this podcast and letting us say whatever the hell we want here. We love them for letting us do that. Let's listen to the episode. Lisa, welcome to The Realignment. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. Good to see you, Lisa. So we are here to talk about your book, Up All Night, Ted Turner, CNN, and the birth of 24-hour news. But a good place to start would be your thoughts on the future. The book came out back in May, I believe, but it's December. This is a reckoning point in some ways if we're thinking about Trump leaving office, Obviously, the industry is really tied to that sort of storyline. So how do you think moving forward, how do you just think about that point of time? Wow. I mean, get out your crystal ball, right? But in some ways, you can look to history to inform what is going to happen going forward. Now, it is a really distinct moment in time. And will cable news drop off? Doubtful. Will audiences shift? Um Yes, likely. Mm -hmm. Will there be different sorts of polarization than we've seen? Yes, absolutely. We're already seeing that. Um, but what will happen to CNN specifically, they're going to have to, you know, realign um, as, as is everyone. And my fear is that all media will, um, because they've been so doggedly in pursuit and in, you know, watching the Trump show all these years uh, might drop the ball because they'll be so dazzled by this kind of boring new administration, what seems to be a boring new administration. But, but who knows? Who knows what really will happen? I think, like I say, history does inform it, but um, viewing habits, um, you know, there's a certain half the segment of the population is going to be angry. So somebody's going to cater to that. Who that is and how that pans out is yet to be seen and will be, I think, influenced by what media develop and the use of media over um, the coming several years. Yeah. Lisa, I mean, how would you compare this? Because the book is so, so good about actually telling like the tr story of how this 24 hour news thing came to be and it was born and it really defines, I mean, especially marginalized lives. Like they, when I think about the inflection points and historical moments, I think about CNN. I think about sitting there as a child, 9-11, sitting there as a child, war in Iraq. President Bush, like these are burned kind of into my head, along with Barbara Starr, um, who I actually covered the Pentagon. I remember meeting her. I was like, I, I watched you as a kid. Like you're Barbara Starr, Wolf Blitzer. It's the same thing. I met him once. Um, it's a little underwhelming. I'm gonna be honest. Um, but <laughs> you know what? How would you analogize this current inflection point situation to what you write about in your book? Is it like 
the beginning, given streaming and internet and all that, like, are we waiting for somebody to come in and recreate the wheel all over again? Like, how, how do you think about those trends in the industry? Well, people, people recreate the wheel as new technologies become available, like how I'm talking to you. Mm-hmm. Um, but how I'm talking to you, it, you know, the analogy there is years ago, we would do it by the phone. I mean, when, when CNN started, it was such a revolution to just have a, a picture or even a voice of a correspondent in the field from all around the world on the air immediately. So each iteration of the technology allows more razzle dazzle or even not even razzle dazzle. Now, you know, you'd see a picture of us talking to each other and there's really nothing remarkable about it at all. It's just a bunch of people sitting around chatting. Um, so each, each iteration of the technology is, is just, um, it's just technology. It's how it influences, like you say, how it influences yeah. you, what sears into your brain as a young kid turning on the news. It's the access to the news. I just wrote a book that hasn't been published yet about the creation of NPR. And one of NPR's first star um, anchor people is, 80, is, is 76 years old. And she talks about how when she was a little girl during World War II in rural New Mexico, so even, even if she'd been in a big city, she would have had access to more media, but she had very right. little access to media. She couldn't even get TV in the early day. Well, this is pre, pre-television, but um, she would sit and listen to Murrow on the radio with her dad and hear the news reports from the field um, on the radio and how dazzling and extraordinary that was. And that informed her decision to go into the media. So I'm not sure if I'm getting at what you're asking, but it's so interesting to hear. I, as a little girl, remember hearing that television hadn't always been around. And when I was a kid growing up in New York, television went off at you know, midnight or one o'clock in the morning and there wasn't 24 seven media. So my influences were different, but very much really the same. It's just informed by the delivery system, Mm -hmm. which I don't know if that's helpful. No, No, it it is. And as we get into the present day and the evolution, a good place to start would be 1980s. So a couple immediate questions. Who was Ted Turner? Who is Ted Turner? He's still alive, obviously. But then secondly, the part that I really loved about the book is, in my telling, and I think Sagar will agree, and most of our audience will agree, cable news is the definition of something that isn't sexy. It's not cool. We don't subscribe. If you do subscribe, it's for the sports, and there's sort of an incidental thing there. I watched the debates using YouTube with sort of a sort of you know streaming function. So let's talk about who Ted Turner was in the 80s, why that really matters. But then also, what was it about 24-hour news that back then was this cool, innovative thing that really changed the way people saw these things? Well, 24-hour news just didn't exist. The news cycle actually went to bed every night. The news, Mm -hmm. you know, people went to bed every night. There was very, you, you could maybe tune into some sort of radio and hear all night long, you know, chit chat. But the idea that you would turn on a television and and hear news at any time or be alerted to the idea that there was a news breaking at any time was remarkable. When Ted Turner started out, he was a billboard salesman in the 70s. He'd inherited his father's company. 
Um, and billboards, you know, of course, served a certain purpose and were a certain sort of controversial back in their day, but they made him a lot of money and he decided that wasn't sexy enough and he got into radio and that wasn't sexy enough. And then he bought by almost complete happenstance, he bought into a little uh, UHF channel in Atlanta where he was headquartered, which didn't reach very far. And once he had his hands on this technology, which was not by our standards right now, remarkable. We we're, we could reach more people. We are reaching more people in this forum than he was right. then with a television station, which cost quite a lot of money. He was um, dazzled by the possibilities, mostly from the sales standpoint, not from the content standpoint, because he was a he was an ad salesman. And it was it was in this march in the 1970s, which uh, a lot of people don't remember or weren't alive for uh, was a march of technology that's not dissimilar from what we've seen over the last 10 years as podcasting took over the universe and the iPhone took over the universe. And, uh, and, and basically, Ted Turner seized this momentum of the 70s where cable was being invented, completely not sexy, unless you lived in a rural part of the United States where you had not been able to get a television signal before, like uh, the NPR anchor I was talking about. I mean, that helped enable a whole swath, a huge part of our country to get uh, to get just basic television signal. Uh, and then from there, it married with the invention of the satellite or the commercial availability of the satellite. Again, sexy if you're an engineer, not so sexy, just <laughs> a delivery mechanism, it's a utility, but it was a thrill at that moment in time. And those two things coming together Ted Turner was paying enough attention. Um, he was also boozing and carousing and racing yachts and living this wild, crazy, fabulous, you know, over-the-top life. But he was also plugged in enough to see that this, literally, this marriage of these two technologies had great capability. Now, he didn't care one bit about the news. News was not interesting to him. Sports were interesting to him simply because he was making money um, selling sports on on his channels but he wanted to deploy this technology and that was you know in, in, if he had been alive now he might have been the guy who came up with tiktok he was um he wasn't an, an engineer but he he saw the power of this technology and that's when he sat around with a bunch of his guys and they were guys then um and said what can we do with this that's that's unprecedented and that's where they said, let's start a 24-hour news channel. It wasn't that they had any political agenda or any grand ambitions to unite the world at that moment in time. It was simply a story of technological advancement, and they seized the moment, and they were there. You know, I, you're not old enough to remember. I hate when I say that, but I'm now old enough to remember when I, as a young person in my 20s, would meet people who had their first cell phones. Uh, you've uh -huh. probably seen pictures of them. They were bricks and they cost a fortune. And the minutes, you know, you, you know, you'd have to be very wealthy to get one because just to make a phone call to you wherever you were cost a lot of money. And, you know, that people who bought those cell phone licenses, those cell tower licenses in those early days got really, really, really rich. And it, it's again, you know, if you're, it's a moment of time that you walk into. Uh, people, people applied for those licenses and didn't even have the money. They just 
leverage themselves to buy them. And Ted Turner was in just this per the catbird seat. He was in this perfect position. He had just enough money. He had just enough gumption. He was just crazy enough to not worry that, you know, this all could collapse on him. Uh, and he was visionary enough to see that all of us, because he'd seen it in increments, all of us, human nature, um, was that we want to watch and we want to be plugged in and we want to we want to be tuned in 24 hours. But back to your original question, it is so hard for us to imagine that there was ever a time that you didn't, yeah. you weren't plugged in constantly, that you couldn't find out instantly what was going on. But that was not very long ago. You know, what's so interesting hearing about this is when your emphasis on the technology is that because they had that, they didn't have as much of an assumption about the content and about how that was all going to work out. And so one thing I know from your book, this is so fascinating to me, is that they were like, we'll place, place less of an emphasis on the talent. Like the talent won't be the product and the news will be the product. Like people will tune in for the news. I mean, that is not how cable works today. Like I did cable last night. It's all about the personality and they're super short bites. And let's be honest, nobody really cares about the news. I've been on during daytime Fox. I'm sure a couple dozen people saw me um, and they had me on mute while they were in like a diner or something like that. That's the truth. Um, how did that turn out? Talk about some of the assumptions about talent and news and personalities and kind of like what they thought it was, and what it actually ended up being. I have one word answer, and then I'll expand uh -huh. on it for your, for your point, your excellent uh -huh. point, and that is competition. When CNN started, there was no competition. Right. There, it, it, there, first of all, there, hardly anybody had cable, so really nobody saw it. I think it was a, you know, a million point two people CNN launched, and there were a million point two people who could get it. That doesn't mean <laughs> they tuned in. And there were maybe 18 million homes in the entire United States that had cable when CNN launched in 1980. But to your point, and, and, and CNN has played a huge factor in the role in this, is journalism didn't used to be celebrity oriented. Yes, mm -hmm. there are people who we know, if you study journalism, you know who Murrow was, you know who Cronkite was. Um, you might know a couple of other names from ancient history, but, but you probably don't know famous newspaper reporters from the early 20th century. And that's because back then there were very few, it wasn't about creating a brand or, you know, celebrity. You didn't have to, you were a person who were out, you were out in the field covering whatever you were covering, dispatching back whatever dispatches you had. And yes, maybe you, you, know, you were notorious for a certain reason at some point, but mostly it was just good journeyman, journey person, mostly men, journalism. What happened is when CNN started in, 19, in 1980, the TV news was changing radically in the 70s, partially because of technology and partially because of uh, rules and, and um, just changes it. I'm trying to shorthand a whole lot of right. uh, broadcasting history. complicated history. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but TV was changing radically. Everything was changing radically in yeah. the 70s. Cultural mores, the, you know, women, uh, you know, we'd had civil rights had burbled up in the, in the 60s. Everything was changing. And so when, when CNN launched in 1980, the news was the star because that's all there was. There wasn't any money 
to pay a zillion dollars to some blockbuster anchor. And there weren't that many blockbuster anchors anyway. And to staff it, just to get it off the ground with the limited budget it had, it had to be not crowdsourced a la TikTok or something, but, but, but it had to be, um, it had to just be engineered by young people mostly who didn't know or care about making big bucks. They, they needed a job and they wanted a Petri dish to work in and there weren't any other alternatives. You couldn't start your own show in your, in your basement um, without a lot of hassle and then no one would probably see it. So, so people came to CNN and CNN's ethos was the news was the star. And in fact, if you look at the pictures of the people who were on the air, then they were not, I mean, people in general weren't glam glamorous because they weren't engineered the way they are now with the white teeth and the Botox and all of that. But um, it's kind of startling when you watch television because I don't own a TV and I see how every single person has that those teeth. <laughs> it's like, I know those people don't all have those teeth, but yeah, you know, yeah. they're all engineered. Well, that didn't exist in 1980. And so uh, the news was the issue. Now they still had the same problem, which was, okay, there isn't something happening every 24 and any every second to fill 24 hours. So they had to scramble. And that's also what's interesting too. And it's really hard for us to remember that, uh, and, and you were not around for this, that um, every single godforsaken press conference or briefing or, you know, be it from a disaster site or something in Washington. I mean, Washington was a complete and utter, uh, time-filling boondoggle for CNN because there's constantly a press yeah, conference. Content. But no one had ever parked a camera in the back of the room and rolled on the thing and transmitted it live before because mm -hmm. that's kind of boring. <laughs> it, was, yeah. it was kind of boring. So, so it just did not exist. So it, this is what, so I wrote a book about Bhutan years ago, and it was the same sort of conversation. You, it's so mind blowing to imagine that there's a, a country that existed in the 20th century that didn't have roads. Mm -hmm. It didn't have roads. It didn't have hard currency. It wasn't electrified. It's the same sort of conversation. They were happy though. That's and their they thing. Were right? That's their National thing. Happiness they that. didn't have to see how <laughs> their teeth weren't white enough and their clothing yeah. wasn't fancy enough. And that's exactly the same conversation with cable news you know right now it's this cutthroat multi-zillion dollar competition and it's i think in many ways ruined the world uh while informing it too but it's you have to step back 40 years and and put yourself in the head of there were there was nothing else to watch on cable there was some sports there were some movies um you know there were other movies that was a whole other conversation. MTV came up so you could watch yep. music, which was a wacky, crazy, mind-blowing thing to people. But you know, then when you're flipping through and you see, and by the way, the remote control didn't always exist either. When you're flipping through and you're seeing these people in a newsroom and there's people running around behind them, or maybe it's just some boring, wonky press conference with you know, some guy dressed in a tie who you don't know, but wow, maybe what's happening? It's live. Let me look at it. Hmm. Maybe he's going to say something interesting. Oh, not interesting. Click. So that, that whole world was, it was, it, you know, the perfect analogy, you're, you probably don't remember this, but I remember when texting became a thing, like people started texting. It was called MMS. Then it came we over. We were barely, yep. I think we I were it. barely yeah, we were there. right at the, on my Motorola Razor. Yeah. <laughs> 
(laughs) But so people my age, I'm 57, people my age had to learn the whole idea. My mother, 83, just learned how to text. It's crazy. I'll (laughs) never talk to her again. She's going to text me forever. But when texting first came in, widespread to our, you know, day-to-day universe, people had to learn what that was. And that's how, that's what's happened with what, what CNN did. It taught people how to expect that news would be constantly available, even if there was no news, even if that was just a wonky guy at a press conference. See, that I think is the most important point. And one thing I'm thinking about, I just want to make this more vivid to people is like, I used to be a White House correspondent. And the first time I ever got to ask a question to the president, I remember standing up and all the cameras pan with you, like at this press conference. And you're like, oh my God, like I'm live before like millions of people. That was the first time it was ever in my head. And I was like, I better not screw this up, better not screw this up. And after a while, like you get used to it. But I'll never forget that moment. I mean, it was the first time that I was like, holy shit, millions of people are watching me right now. And it was so crazy. But to to your point there about, and by the way, I I agree with you, it ruined the briefing room and it ruined journalism in in many different, you know, important ways. But that's a a different conversation. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about the competition aspect. And I wonder, where do you think the turning point was? Because I kind of see it with Murdoch. I think Murdoch's entry onto the stage and Roger Ailes. I mean, Roger Ailes, like, you know, he had a lot of problems, but like in terms of this, like he was a a real genius, you know, in terms of my reading on this is like it's it's not even that he made it entertainment it was about presenting the news in a way that he knew was going to cater to an unserved audience and at the moment what was it five years only after they launched their number one and that creates the incentive structure for msnbc and cnn to follow and look at cable today who are the highest rated shows? Tucker is the highest rated person on all of cable. Behind him is like a bunch of other Fox shows. Then it's Rachel Maddow, Chris Hayes. And then even on CNN, like people in Washington think of CNN like Jake Tapper, right? Here's the truth. Nobody watches Jake Tapper. He probably gets like four or 500,000 viewers, you know, in his hour. They watch like Don Lemon and Chris Cuomo, who nobody in DC actually watches. And I think that that is what created that that dynamic. I'm just curious if you agree that Murdoch is really the one who started all this. And I just love to hear your thoughts. Oh, there's absolutely no question. CNN Mm -hmm. had a a 15 or 16 year history as it was, they were ramping up as the technology of cable married to satellite was ramping up as the United States was become, well, the world, but we don't, we'll leave them out of this conversation because that's too complicated. But, (laughs) but the United States was learning how getting wired for cable, you know, when CNN launched, you couldn't get it in DC. You couldn't get it in New York. It was not in major American cities because major American cities were not yet wired for cable because at that point they didn't need to be. So as CNN ramped up from 1980 to the mid nineties, as it was becoming part of this cultural and news, you know, journalistic force, it was doing that in tandem with the United States being wired for for cable and um, with milestone events along the way. I write in the book about the little girl in the well in Texas who fell in and that put CNN on the map for a lot of people because they wanted to watch and see if the girl got rescued. You know, before that, that was the shuttle shuttle challenger. Um, after that, you had the Gulf War. And then in the mid 90s, when when Murdoch and Ailes uh, started Fox, 
that and that all happened for complex broadcasting reasons which if you're interested in the history i'm sure you know this but listeners it, it's it's such a fascinating moment the in time. war to get on cable is was insane like people do not understand like we're talking about literal analog plugs that go into things and that getting in that plug in like new york is worth like a billion dollars like giuliani got so city politi- and, yeah, the politicians yeah. and and you see this um, people should look up John Malone too. Like there's all these controversies with these big, you're talking to the two nerdiest cable people you run into yeah. in the DC space, but there's this crazy body of work over all these sort of things. It, it's really yeah. exciting. It's Those They were cowboys. They literally, oh, yeah. you know, you, you think about the wild West and the gold rush. And that we, we talked about that in the early days when I was at the New York times, every, we had to say, you were not allowed to write the gold rush, the wild, wild West about a story <laughs> that has to do with the internet. But that's what, you know, 20 years with cable yeah. that's what it was and it was only people crazy enough rich enough or wacky i mean they were wacky to go out and mine all of that but when when murdoch came in and he you know enjoyed this relaxation of rules that allowed him to uh, buy different uh, broadcasting channels and that like i say a whole other thing right. you know all of that uh when when murdoch and ailes came in that forced cnn's game um, because CNN up until that point could afford to just have some, you know, really good anchor person from Kansas City who they hired, who was so thrilled to be working on the national stage. Um, and that person didn't have to be branded into a star and they just had to be good. I, I worked at, at MSNBC. I was hired from the New York Times at MSNBC in the late 90s to be the on-air internet correspondent mm. um and what- that was a hot job that was that was yeah that, that was cool that must have right. pre-dot-com bust that must have been huge <laughs> you would have thought so yeah but it wasn't right. because the man who ran msnbc thought that the internet was bullshit <laughs> <laughs> so can i ask a quick how question how do you run microsoft's that? network and you well, think yeah so, so Sagar, that's the key thing that people probably don't know oh yeah that's as true. i understand right. that the ms is Microsoft, you know, if, if it's, and also people, this is also related. Slate.com was also a Microsoft creation. All right, so please. let's talk about this. How was that possible? They didn't think the internet was serious. Well, Slate wasn't, I, I don't think Slate, it's, I have to go back in the memory bank. Slate wasn't a Microsoft creation. It got acquired by that. But ah, MS, yeah, MSNBC. Right. <laughs> oh, it was the first web magazine. That's what it was. That, yeah. yeah, it was the first. Yeah. And, and well, no, I think Salon might. Or maybe, yeah, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, I have to go back in time. But yeah, you know, MSNBC was a fascinating and revolutionary concept in response to CNN and um, and Fox and CNN Fox doing their thing, and Microsoft and uh, and uh, NBC are like, oh crap, what are we going to do? We have to do something now. So you know, which is again in every sort of technological boom, that's what happens. There's the innovation right. person and or or company. And then there are all the me too, sorry, not that me too, but the me, like, I want to do that too. I have some skin in this game, so I want to get in on it. So Microsoft and NBC got together and they created what was supposed to be this. I I was not only the internet correspondent, I was the first person who was both on the air, but I also wrote a column for the website, which like right now, every single person does that. (laughs) Every single person (laughs) works multi-platform. But back then that was so crazy and revolutionary. And I was one of the only idiots who would do it because, you know, it was seen as such a strange 
concept. You were either on TV or you were a writer. You would never be both. We even right. tried to launch, my, my producer there tried to launch a, what, what now you would call a podcast because we had so much extra content. But, uh, but anyway, we, when nobody called it content, then either. but, but it was, um, it should have been an exciting job covering that space as I had for the New York times for the web, but because the NBC part and the MS part were at odds and they right. were split, they weren't united. They were not, they, they it was not one line item and one pool of money that paid everybody they, they were at odds with each other. And the guy I worked for at the Microsoft side, the website side was much more visionary, but had less power than the guy who ran the, the cable side who decided to make me like the Vanna White of cable. So during the hanging Chad elections of 2000, I was the jerk who had to go on the Ollie North, Paul Begala show every night and say, oh, Ollie and Paul, today we got this email from Joe in Kansas who's angry about this. Uh -huh. And I had to read emails. I mean, it was We're fun. Sorry. I got my hair done. <laughs> oh, oh my God, it was a nightmare. And the, I mean, I'm telling you that very specific example. Yeah. The whole show was like that. Like, so I became the person, I mean, the whole channel, I, yeah. I became the person they would call when a plane crashed somewhere, you know, cable news thrill, there's mm -hmm. a plane crash. And I got called in to sit in front of a computer with Brian Williams, who was then the star and, and say, Brian, okay, let me show you the map where this plane has just crashed. And uh, I'm gonna call up some websites of, er, for, of information where people who may have had family members in this yeah. plane crash can, I, oh, it was such a missed opportunity. But meanwhile, while that's happening, Fox is going crazy and kicking everybody's ass <laughs> and um, becoming Fox and infiltrating the minds of people like my late father who sat there and watched all the then stars of Fox all day and all night long. And CNN sitting around going, oh crap, wait, you know, just doing the news with these nice people, um, you know, who, nice hardworking journalist people is not gonna work. And when, when people got pushed out of MSNBC and there was a huge uh, shut uh, or attrition, or not attrition, um, cutback at GE mm -hmm. from GE, it was GE who owned NBC. Anyway, that's a whole other story. We all would sit around and say, oh, crap, what if we get hired by Fox? We'll have to get jobs. I didn't get a job there. I wound up working in public radio after <laughs> but But because um, oh, yeah, I was too old at 40, they would yeah. never have given me an on-air job. But, but the, there was this wacky, that was a wacky moment in time 20 years ago where cable was just mature enough. It was, you know, it was the thing. It was the delivery mechanism. The internet was just bubbling up. And uh, cable was in, coming into its own. Cable news was coming into its own only because there was competition. What would have happened if no one else had ever come along and started a 24-hour news channel? I have no idea. I mean, yeah. would CNN yeah. have imploded? I, I don't know because you know, it was expensive to run. It's expensive to run now. Uh, anyway. But the key thing here, I want to hit a couple of different points because we're obviously right in on this and there's a lot we want to sort of capture here. Let's talk about cable as a medium and how that sort of shaped these things. I want to lead this into somewhere. So, for example, I didn't know that the reason why HBO was the boxing thing, because that just you sort of see it there. That's there because the first things that HBO was able to sort of build an audience around was broadcasting boxing matches live using the satellites instead of having to watch them the next day. So that's just a weird example of how 
boxing became this really defining moment for them. And then two, and this is another Ted Turner story, Ted Turner owned the Atlanta Braves um, baseball team. And I wondered why I'm from Portland, Oregon. My great-grandmother watched the Atlanta Braves. And that made no sense to me. Um, This is in the 90s. But the reason why she watched it is because, and correct me if I'm telling this history wrong, the reason why she watched this is because Ted Turner used his ownership of the Braves and the ownership of the cable channels to broadcast it all over the country. So the only way many people were able to even watch their hometown teams was if they were playing the Braves. That's why they were called America's team. And it's just so fascinating that all these little dynamics were determined by the nature of a cable thing and to Sagar, your point about and who owned what license where yeah. and Lisa, this goes to your point about buying the things. But here's where I want to sort of take this in and sort of explain why the HBO story matters. You said earlier, in many ways, cable news has made what we perceive to be the news as worse. This is a very sort of conventional sort of take. We all sort of agree here. But if you look at cable's effect on other mediums, it's been the exact opposite. TV before cable was in many ways terrible and schlocky, undifferentiated. There's a reason why everything in the 60s was Westerns. It wasn't just because that was the most brilliant, interesting art form. It's because that was cheap, it was straightforward, and there were three networks. We see HBO, which then gives us Sex in the City and Sopranos and The Wire, and now, you know, Game of Thrones, RIP. There's all those sort of great things. We then see AMC giving us Mad Men and all these sort of all these different avenues, aka it made it better. Why did cable make what we see as the news worse? Like why is why is the news the only space where people look back in the 60s and 70s and say, man, that was so great. Walter Cronkite, he was America's newsman, he told the truth. Why is the narrative so different in cable news? Well, first of all, a lot of that in the 70s is romanticizing. But also <laughs> you're fast. <laughs> you're fast forwarding a little bit too fast because really initially uh, CNN did improve broadcasting in that it, um, it busted up the, mono- the triopoly of the three networks who had the lock on broadcasting at that point. Um, broadcast news, I mean, they had the lock on everything. So when CNN first came along, it forced the networks to rethink and up their game as far as um, coverage shows shows emerged as a result of CNN's presence on the networks that would not have been there. There were some terrific overnight news programs launched by the networks, the best one being the one with Linda Ellerby um, on NBC. Uh, if you've never seen Old Pic, she was just, she was like Stephen Colbert, but she was a real journalist, not playing a journalist. She was- Did she do Nickelodeon things? Yes. I, I, I was wondering why I knew that name. She would do the Nickelodeon specials in the 1990s. <laughs> Yes, she went, she, we all graduate, we can't wait to see what you guys graduate to 20 years from now. I hope I'm still around to watch it. But they, she graduated from being a network news anchor and being a pioneering network news anchor, literally, it was called NBC Overnight and Lloyd Dobbins was her co-host, but she was the star and a woman being the predominant star was unusual then. And this was all in response to CNN. Um, And you would wake up, if you woke up in the middle of the night, it used to be that NBC would be off. Well, now NBC said we can't afford to be off because cable came along. So we have to have something on overnights. So they did this news show and it was, she was wry and I loved her. I wanted to be Linda Ellerby. She, she wore these big glasses. She didn't look like, you know, dumb blonde. Sorry. I mean, she just, she was, she was just a really interesting, smart, 
excellent writer. Uh, and so Lloyd Dobbins was too. And they were just terrific together. So, so for a short while there that's lost to time, um, broadcasting had to, network broadcasting and, and to an extent local broadcasting changed their tune or upped their game because they saw the CNN thing come along and they had, and especially in DC, that created a lot of competition that just didn't, hadn't existed before because before the three networks were in cahoots with each other. It's like the pool and you're the pool today, you're the pool tomorrow and we share everything. And I write about it in the book um, early in CNN's history when when President Reagan was shot. Um, CNN's response to that as a 24-hour network really pushed the, the broadcasting networks to change how they thought about delivering news. Um, that happened for a while. And then what happened, um, and it's an inherent problem with broadcasting, is what do you fill the time with? Well, the easiest thing to fill the time with is somebody with a, pers- a bombastic personality who gets yeah. people together and then you all shout at talk, each talk, other. Because it's not interesting if we're all sitting around kissing each other. Well, you know, that's a whole other kind of- <laughs> right. There's a different market for that. That's but, a different uh, market, <laughs> right. But I mean, it's if we're sitting around agreeing with each other, uh, that's not so interesting. So, so that the inherent nature of broadcasting, it's not to diss CNN or diss Fox or, I mean, there are plenty of reasons to diss them, but it's the inherent nature of filling the time yeah. without having a person standing on every, you know, war zone or, or place in the universe. Um, it, that, that diminishes both the quality of what's happening, because it's not just an intelligent conversation that I tune in for at night. It's this ongoing conversation with a march of people yakking away. Um, and it also diminishes the audience's expectations because you know before, if you had to wait till X period of time during the day or once a week when I knew, you know, Tom Snyder, I don't know if you've watched him at all, he was, the be- you have to look up old Tom Snyder on YouTube. He was mm-hmm. the greatest talk show host of his of his time. And it was on late at night on NBC. He'd sit there with a cigarette, hanging out with whomever was on. And they'd have an amazing conversation. A la, you know, the same reason people love Terry Gross, because Terry Gross is well-prepared. Yes. She's, you know, she's incredibly intelligent. She's well-prepared. She's doing one, maybe two interviews a day. Yes, she's had people help her prepare for it, but she's not trying to just wah, 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 fill the time, which is what happens with cable, cable news. Uh, it, so it's an inherent failing of broadcasting that to do really good broadcasting requires a major event. You know, if you go back and look online at the networks during the assassination of President Kennedy, you know, they went on and on and on. I mean, obviously that was a cataclysmic event in society, not just in the United States. And it was an early example of broadcasting. And you can watch these people, uh, the broadcasters and the the people they're covering all emote and respond in real time to this horrific tragedy that's just occurred. That's a big mystery. Nobody knows what happened, what's going to happen. That's a really stellar example. I mean, it's a horrible example, but it's a stellar example of broadcasting and broadcasters rising to this occasion. And yet at the same time, you still hear 
you, you hear very little pontification because it was all informed by old school journalism, which I know is a big controversy, especially among people of your generation. What is journalism? What is old school journalism? But in this, in this day of old school journalism, I mean, the idea that you even saw Walter Cronkite break down um, was so remarkable and I, it was so reflective of what was happening. Uh, so I, I, I have to say that, that CNN changed broadcasting. It, it, broadcasting in general inherently has sort of self-imploded and, and yeah. it's not any one place's fault, but it's you know in the hands of uh, the people it's in the hands of, all of them, all three of them, uh, well, and more of them too, because now they're the ones that just exist in other platforms. They, they're all in the hands of those, those voices. And the whole idea of injecting a point of view was a bit of evil genius that completely eradicated conventional journalism and forced CNN and MSNBC to do, to do the same because there was no way they could, they could compete unless they did do the same. And let's speak more about competition, because as we're thinking about the critique of cable news today as a force that divides and inflames, part of that's, once again, the market economics driving the dynamic in the sense that if you're competing, if, if it's just CNN, CNN could be the most ecumenical news station of all time. Their market is anyone who wants to watch news at any time during the day. But when you have MSNBC, MSNBC is c competing in sort of the more upscale market. Um, I think a funny fact is didn't they sort of festoon their sets to look like coffee shops sort of at the start? So they, they were sort of trying to like make them look a little different. Um, but then – if you're then having Fox, then there's another market there too. So now today we're seeing it bifurcate even more. You're seeing conservative networks attack Fox for not being, uh, <laughs> I'm trying to put this lightly, um, for not admitting a very basic Don't fact about who won the election <laughs> yeah. um, a few weeks ago. But now you have Newsmax and One America News. So it just seems that like cable is forcing things in a nicher and nicher and nicher direction where there will be no ability to have any sort of shared narrative. Can you sort of just speak about that dynamic? Look, I wrote a book before this book about, well, it wasn't really about the creation of McDonald's, but it wound up being a lot about the creation of McDonald's because I was- You have written the most fascinating book. Well, yeah, can, you, can, you tell, can you tell us the book? What was the, what was the book? I yeah. love you guys. We have to hang out more. Um, yeah. This book was called Ray and Joan, The Man Who Made the McDonald's Fortune and the Woman Who Gave It All Away. And I couldn't sell the book when it was just about Joan because nobody, you know, as much as everybody loves women and women are so great, nobody would buy the book when it was just about Joan Kroc, who was the greatest and underrecognized and craziest philanthropist of her. I mean, she was so interesting. She wasn't just sitting around writing checks. She was doing crazy, fabulous stuff. I wrote this whole book about her, but to write that book, I had to write about how she got the fortune in the first place from her husband who um, started, who worked, he didn't start McDonald's. He worked with these right. two guys in the I desert. The founder. Yeah, you watch the founder, which is, there's so much wrong in the founder. Don't get me oh, started. Uh -oh. Oh, oh my God, so much is, these boat movies freak me out because it's so much wrong. But so, so basically, and we were only able to sell the book because that movie was coming out. But I'm, I'm bringing up, not to, not to pimp my book about Ray and Joan, because I want to, because it is such a great book. I hope people read it. But, and it is about this moment in time in 20th century history in the United States where fast food was starting 
The McDonald's brothers didn't invent hamburgers. They didn't invent fast food. They, they came up with the system. They, they got together with Ray Kroc, at a, who was selling milkshake machines and paper cups, and he got together with them and he helped propagate uh, their, their system uh, around the nation and ultimately around the world. And it grew and grew. And I, I won't tell that story, but the reason I bring it up is it's the exact same thing as cable television, cable news. Ted Turner, strange moment in time, married to technologies. He sees this moment. He got this thing up and running. It almost didn't happen, which is the big part of the story that I write in the book, that it almost didn't happen. Um, so many things went wrong. Finally, it got up. People are like, what the hell is this? Why the hell do we need this? Who the hell wants it? What's cable television? Oh my God, everybody now all of a sudden goes from what's cable television to I can't live without cable television. And uh, all of a sudden, other you know the vultures are swarming. Everybody wants a piece of the action. Fox comes in, MSNBC comes in, everything changes. Same thing with the McDonald's, same thing with the hamburgers. We didn't just start out eating. There was a time when we didn't eat food on the road. We didn't, you know, we didn't eat out. You know, most people couldn't afford to eat out. So, so the, if you look at the, the march of how we as a culture in this country got indoctrinated into eating out and eating food made quickly to go, um, which is to me really fascinating. Um, if you parallel that with how we got addicted to listening and watching media, cable television in this case, um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's exactly the same thing, really. I mean, yeah. and, and it really is, you know, if you look at any industry, the, except the phone industry, because they've always been a monopoly. Um, well, even that, if you look at later phone industry, if you look at it, all these 20th century technological revolutions, uh, they're, all, they're all basically the same. One guy comes up with an idea. Another guy says, I want a piece of that. They innovate. They force some sort of, you know, cataclysm that, that right. makes it change and I'm repeating myself now. Sorry. But yeah, I think no, it's, yeah. it's fascinating. Well, it's funny, you know, before we were talking about just about how that filling time and how much damage that did. I just want I want our listeners to take that away because this is why I hate cable. Um, I'm thinking back. I had when I was I was younger um, and I, you know, was obsessed with getting on TV. So I would take any phone call. So it's like 1130 at night, Fox producer calls me. She's like, hey, can you come on all night to sit there as a standby guest? Because Trump got these like North Korean hostages released. And obviously, you know, I was like, yeah, sure, I'll do it. So I'm like sitting in this green room and like you're just sitting on the set there and you're you literally just have live pictures ahead of you. And as you said, the true innovation is people want to see those North Korean hostages walk off the plane. But nobody knows when the hell it's going to happen. Right. So you have to fill Three hours, three and a half hours, 3.30 in the a.m. till they walk off the damn plane. So I'm like sitting there with this guy and we're just riffing about North Korea and planes and stuff. And I realized truly in that moment, I'm like, all, all I'm doing here is filling time. I'm not here to add value. I mean, you are in a way, but like you're only there in order to make this extra moments profitable, interesting for the viewer so they stay for the commercial break. Yes. But the fascinating part to me is that I think the success of my show Rising is that we basically disaggregated that 
because of new technology, right? So what we have now is an intentional one and a half hour show. I think this is all podcasting, right? Which is that you have an intentional show, which is you curated airs at the same time of the day, doesn't have to fill time, doesn't have to like, you know, be in there between the commercial breaks or comment on like, you know, breaking news or whatever. Well, quick thing, sorry. Sorry, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, just quick, real quick. Yeah. But this is the, and Lisa, I'd like you to comment on this part of the dynamic, which is that the reason why most shows aren't on YouTube is that one business model is much better from the yeah, other business model. Yeah, it doesn't make you much more money. Right, because right. that's what we're not really talking about because yeah. what's brilliant about the cable model, what people mistake when they say, oh, CNN only gets 1.2 million yeah, viewers. They'll make a lot no, of money. No, right. they sell cable. <laughs> they're a huge part of the cable yeah. bundle. People probably wouldn't subscribe to cable if there wasn't the news there in the first place and they sell the advertising. So yeah. that's just the point I'd add to that. <laughs> no, you're 100% correct too, which is it can be a shitty medium and still make a lot of money. And, and, and so you can have a better medium and a better thing and not even make one hundredth of the amount of money, but I think the industry is probably trending more in that direction. So that's my curi- it's my curiosity with you, which is that what in the cord cutting era do you see as the future? Not even the future of news, but the future of like information consumption, because that's what news was, right? It re- it wasn't actually about Washington; it was about information consumption. Obviously, the iPhone, you know, all of that, but. We're moving forward, YouTube, Instagram, and all that. I see that something is coming. I just don't know where it's going to go. Well, and if you do, call yeah. me up and I'll come work for you. We'll figure <laughs> right. it out. Yeah. Okay. So, so when I started working in yeah. the 80s, and even when I was you know, studying and all that, um, even before I started working, the big conversation was, is news what you need to know or news what you want to know? Yeah. So there was a big you know, hue and cry in the 80s with newspapers as newspapers were starting to realize, uh uh-oh, this broadcasting thing is whacking us out. You know, people aren't reading us as much as they're uh, watching TV. And the question was, do they, do newspapers, again, I'm looking at the United States lens, do we keep printing uh, international news? Because most people really don't care. So there was this big debate about what news, who, whose job it was to say who the news was. To, if I wanted to read international news, well, I could maybe listen to the BBC or subscribe mm-hmm. to The Economist, but I, most people didn't want that. So we'll start easing it out of the newspaper. So I say that in answer to your question. I think you know what different people want, what, what we expect now, is that we can choose what we get to see. Before, 20 years ago, you expected, you paid, I had to pay for cable if I wanted to get X or Y or Z. And along with that came all these other things and I'll suck it up and I have to take it. You don't really want it, but I have to take it because I want these things. Now we're in such an a la carte universe. uh, I think that that's only gonna get more so Um, But I just, I I don't really know because I do know that the more, you know, AT&T has the power it has always had, even when they've busted up the monopoly, they they still always, you know, what what is it like a snail whose head you chop off, they grows (laughs) back and they come back bigger than ever. That's what happens with with AT&T, with these big companies, and they always figure out a way to aggregate everything, Um, you know, all the tech companies are aggregating Salesforce just bought, uh, you know, what's it called? Slack. Slack, And, you know, everybody's always aggregating and, and trying to figure out a way to make we the consumer 
beholden to package deals that are more more beneficial for them than they are for us as consumers. So how that all plays out, what that looks like down the road, um, you know, when I see my 10 year old neighbor every day out at the community pool and I'm thinking, okay, what is this kid? This kid's world is obviously so different than mine. What happens to her? What is she gonna grow up? You know, her parents are in their thirties and they sit around and watch YouTube videos. They don't sit around and watch network TV. Yeah. Um, what what is it? How is it going to play out? I think we don't know the specifics yet, obviously, because we don't know what the companies are, the technologies are. People, you know, your peers are inventing this stuff. You're going to invent this stuff uh, in the coming years. So I think in the end, what matters is that people, what we know for sure is that people want to be connected and they want to be informed and they want to express. And how that how that plays out, um, especially now that we won't have a president, presumably who tweets, um, you know, who who is as engaged in social media. I don't think these this new team is going to be as engaged. Not even close. In, yeah. yeah, I mean, I hope not because it's just Twitter. We we haven't even talked about how Twitter's ruined yeah. the universe because Twitter <laughs> has ruined the universe. It's ruined civility and uh, all that. But but yeah, so I I don't. I have I haven't got a clue, mm-hmm. um, although I think if we did sit down and kept talking and, and laid out all of the technological milestones of the last hundred and something years, still photography, recorded music, and and its impact, you know, we we could maybe hazard a guess, but the. It, I'm not sure. Am I even answering what you're asking? No, I, I think, think that's that's no, you are. Uh, which is where good, is it going to come from? Yeah. And 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 a good final question for me here is, once again, we're we're all shouting out the book here. But what I like how you did is you it's very much tied to these personalities. It's the it's it's Daniel Shore. It's Ted Turner. We're talking about Rupert Murdoch here. So as we're sitting in the year 2020, going to 2021, hopefully we'll have a better 2021. Where do you think these personalities, where are they going to be drawn to from an opportunity perspective? So are the sort of Ted Turners and Rupert Murdoch's and Daniel Shores of today, are they going to be trying to work in big media? Are they trying to create their own podcasts that they run independently? Obviously, Joe Rogan, up until his Spotify deal, was an interesting case study because you had someone who was capable of building an audience that rivaled that of mainstream networks, yet he was doing it independently. Obviously, he still owns his stuff and licenses his stuff to Spotify, but that was sort of a counterpoint to the idea that media would decentralize and these big players couldn't do it. And then another relevant thing, and I'm not sure this is going to happen, but there's talk of Jeff Bezos himself wanting to buy CNN. So where do you just sort of, yeah, there's 15 different shows we could do here. Um, Maybe we'll do like an original series or something. But the broad point sort of is, if you think of these personalities, where do you think they are looking at? Wes, what they are going to do, where are they focused in right now? Well, look, haven't we just seen all these people go get gobbled up by the New York Times, Mm -hmm. do their podcasts in their, um, you know, I have a podcast in a column. Right. And, 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 you know, we have this we have this conversation or we've had these conversations when Napster came along, you know, when the whole digital music revolution, I covered that a ton at the New York Times, was, oh my God, you know, is uh name famous rock group, you know, well the who uh yeah. you know, from then, 
Well, the who's Nirvana, right? Ditched, they hate it. Yeah, Nirvana. Yeah, will they ditch right. their record company and go direct to consumer, or will they stay? Well, okay. What they do is interesting, of course, but more interesting is how does the new talent get developed? We have the same conversation in publishing. You know, mm -hmm. one more person says to me, "Will you self-publish books?" I was like, "Well, if I was famous, I might self-publish books. <laughs> but if I want to make a living right now, and I don't make much of one, I have to sell my books to a publisher because." Books don't, you know, the, the economic model doesn't work out uh, if I'm just peddling books myself. You no, know, maybe I'm not trying hard enough. Maybe I should write some romance novels. I, I, <laughs> but, but, but you want to make real money. Yeah, yeah. I want to at least make a couple bucks. But so, so the whole yeah. idea is that the famous people, and this is what's so upsetting, is that the famous people can go out and, um, either start a podcast and then get gobbled up by a company that gets gobbled up by another company that, that, you know, cuts them in on the deal. And then there's big money involved, but the, the startup guy or gal or entity um, just entering that world has to, you know, either become Billy, the Billy Eilish of podcasting yeah. um, and, you know, do the podcast and hope that somebody picks it up. And, and so I, I think the answer to that question is that the celebrity media culture that we've got, sadly, just becomes more so because we, you know, I can have something interesting to say, but if I'm not a name, look, my, my um, boyfriend, husband, I call him, you know, whatever, the guy I live with runs a company called Live Talks LA where he does these live events with authors and conversation with other people, but they're all name people. They're, and most of them aren't writers per se. And, you know, he'll come home and he'll say, I, I got Marcus Samuelson to interview Ziggy Marley. Well, that's a cool conversation you listen to. But if they were just two interesting guys, would you listen to them? I don't know. Yeah. And, and so I think that this celebrity zeitgeist, I see it maybe just like I say, because I live with that every day, uh, is just going to become more, more certain. But yet you see all these people who innovated these podcast companies and grew them to a certain amount, to a certain level, um, both of income and popularity audience. And then, you know, they get to a certain point and then they have to sell to get to the next level mm -hmm. because everything's getting rolled up. So it's the same thing all over again. Ted Turner was independent. He was, you know, happily independent and crazily independent and, you know, de deflecting any sort of, you know, outside interest. And then he screwed himself by trying to buy CBS and he got leverage and, and right. CBS and MGM and he needed to take in partners. And that rolled up, started rolling up the cable industry um, and changing everything. So I think, you know, even the people who want to be independent ultimately hit a wall unless you know, the Howard Stearns of the universe, different, different animal. Um, but he's not even independent. Yeah, that's he, sold yeah, he isn't anymore. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. exactly. But he was able, he was able to name his price and leave terrestrial radio um, in a way that was groundbreaking when he did it um, mm -hmm. because he, he said goodbye to the old fashioned medium. And of course they were willing to pay him the money to go to satellite radio because they needed an ornament to, you know, get and same Spotify's in the same exact position that yep. Sirius and XM were now they're Sirius X. I mean, it's just the same. It, it's just the story just gets told over and over again. Who's the famous person in five years who gets, picked up by Bezos's, you know, monolithic megalopolis, whatever yeah. he's going to create, you know, with the Washington Post and everything. 
I want people to really internalize what you just said because I get a lot of people who reach out and they're like, I want to be like what you guys do. Like, I want to I want to do that. And so what they say is, and they they look at all of these incredible tools for creators, Substack, all that other stuff, right? Twitter. And they're like, I don't need to go mainstream media. Like, I don't need to go get like a normal job. Like, I'm just going to start out on there. And I'm like, no, dude, you can't actually. Like, because I'm like, what you actually have to do is you need to go get an internship at somewhere established and you need to make a name for yourself. And then after you've got a platform, then you can try to start and begin to scale that up through the connections that you have in the industry, et cetera, et cetera. It's not a fun story. Nobody wants to hear that, but it's true. Yeah. When there are two million podcasts, because that's, yeah, that's what's again the podcasts. problem. <laughs> well, and that's the thing. Yeah. You hear the story of the Billie Eilish in her back yeah. room recording with her brother and she becomes famous. And you assume that, well, I, I'm talented. I'll do that too. Do you guys know you're not old enough and I'm not even uh. old enough, but I know this from my dad. Uh, the Schraff's drug sh- store counter story. No, okay, no. well, I'll tell you and your audience this now because you should all know it. <laughs> In the old days, back when Hollywood, the golden age of Hollywood, if an if a starlet, usually it was a, a starlet, not a guy, sitting mm. on a drugstore counter, you know, and some agent walked in and said, "Oh, you are." beautiful. I'm going to sign you to a deal in the movies. I mean, okay. So people would hear about these stories, which happened rarely and flock to Los Angeles because they wanted to be the next discovery from the Schraff's drugstore counter. They wanted to go to this place where they knew that all these Hollywood big guys would come in and hope to get discovered. So now in a digital age, I can maybe get discovered from my messy little den because you know I might put something on YouTube that some Hollywood guy is gonna see me doing and think, oh yeah, let's sign her. But the likelihood of that is about the same or less as getting struck by lightning. Yeah. So, um, but that those those mythologies, you know, or the self-published person who puts out a book for or for a dollar on Amazon Twilight, and takes know. off, and <laughs> yeah, you right. know, then all of a sudden, you're know, Sixty Shades of Grey or whatever that thing is called. Like she did mm-hmm. that; she self-published and it got picked up and it became this whole industry. But that is so unusual. It's so unusual. Yeah, I want. I I just like I said, I have to underscore that because again, it's like they look at all the work it took 10 years to get here or whatever. And I'm like, you got to put the 10 years in. And I, I know it's not fun and look, maybe it'll take five, but you got to do it at least for now. That's just the way that things are going to go. Lisa, this has been such an incredible episode. Um, oh. I want to make sure that people know about the book up all night. Um, they can find it on Amazon. What's your social media, other books, etc. that people should check out. Sure. My website, lisanapoli.com. Um, I'm at Lisa Napoli all over the place. And also I've got a new book coming in April uh, called Susan, Linda, Nina, and Koki. The extraordinary stories of the founding mother story of the founding mothers of NPR. So, yeah, but please look for Ray and Joan because I love that book and I'm so <laughs> proud of that book. Well, I'm going to pick it up. Yeah, yeah I wanna, I'm going I'll to come back and, right after this. We'll talk go. about. Got, well, you got to come back to talk about NPR. So done. I love it. No, that's a really interesting '70s story. The the civil rights, the women's rights movements twin together while the at the creation of public radio. So we'll go. We'll step back even a little bit further in time. And it's <laughs> so interesting about Marshall's grandmother and and yeah. TBS. That's fascinating. I love that story. Thank you for having yeah, me. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa. 
Hope you guys enjoyed the episode as much as I did. Be sure to check out therealignment.substack.com and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your audio. We really appreciate it and it helps people find the show. With that, a special thank you to the Lincoln Network for sponsoring this podcast. We really appreciate all of the support that they gave us and we will see you all next week. <laughs>